So this is possibly the last of the talks on the four bodhisattva vows. Though I may do one more, some kind of wrap up. It could be helpful if you're the kind of person who likes to do Dharma study to read different translations of things. I am often struck how I'll get accustomed to one translation, let's say in the ZCO lineage of a core part of the chants, for example, and then I'll read another equally legitimate translation and be really struck how different it is and how much uh, idiosyncrasy translators themselves have. Here are a number of translations of the four Bodhisattva vows that um, an easy Google search turned up. Sentient beings are infinite. They will save themselves. Desires are infinite. They will reach an end by themselves. Dharmas are infinite. So there is learning and study. Buddha's way is not above us, so it is always accomplished. Uh, one translation for this vow that we're on today, the Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to uh, embody it. That's his ECO translation. Someone said, the Buddhist path is endless. I vow to follow it to its very end. Or here is uh, one that's different through all four vows. Living beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. Confusions are countless. I vow to cut them all. The Buddha's teachings are limitless. I vow to penetrate them all. The Buddha's way is highest. I vow to achieve it. I vow to liberate all ordinary beings from my mind. I vow to eliminate all defilements from my mind. I vow to embrace every teaching of my self-nature. I vow to achieve the way of enlightenment from my self-nature. However innumerable all beings are, we vow to enlighten them. However inexhaustible the passions are, we vow to extinguish them. However immeasurable the dharmas are, we vow to master them. However incomparable the Buddha truth is, we vow to attain it. Before I put you to sleep with these, let me just put one, maybe one more. Beings are innumerable, I vow to save them all. Delusions are interminable, I vow to drop them all. Dharma gates are endless, I vow to pass through them all. The Buddha way, however long, I vow to follow through. This one for me over the years was um, largely like an aspirational energy or, or it, it was an emotional experience because it'd be at the end of the night. And for those of you who know the, the, um, the uh, monastery or have had the monastery experience, you know that when you chant these, bedtime is not too far off. So it's really hard. It's like a really heartfelt thing. Like, okay, that's the fourth vow. Probably that was the third round. This is really good. We're getting close to bedtime. But I never thought about how much meaning this had. Mostly it was, it was like about um, a commitment. 
It was about we're committing, we're doing this thing, we're doing this practice together, whether it's in this setting or in a, in a communal setting, in the monastery, and we're just, we're, we're affirming that we really want to do this wholeheartedly. But I'm picking these apart to see, like, can we find more, more meaning from these? And so I invite you into these, these contemplations. This could be a vow to be the best person we can be. And that's what it means to, to embody the Buddha way, to be the best person we can be. This could be a vow to wake up from merely being a person or seeing through personness. We could see this as taking our spiritual practice as far as we can. Embodying the six perfections. So imagine for yourself that you were to commit to one of these with your whole heart, to being the best person you could be, to waking up from whatever believing in self does to us. Imagine you commit to taking your spiritual practice absolutely as far as it can be. Imagine that now. I want to invite you into that. Imagine that you redesign or reorient your life with this as your priority. And how does that feel? How does that feel to consider really making that that kind of vow? What arises in you considering that? These may not be the kind of core aspirations that live in you, and maybe they shouldn't be the ones that live in you. But imagine that you really put all your eggs in the, this basket of, of, of waking up. How does it feel to do that? I remember when I took ordination, it wasn't so much that I, I felt happiness that I was committing so much to the spiritual path, but I felt a relief from my own delusions. I felt that in making that commitment, I was freed from some other burdens that I carried. And I was kind of saved from myself temporarily. This uh, vow of the Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it or unattainable. Uh, you could read this, and I think some people do read this as saying that a life aimed at awakening is the most virtuous thing. A life aimed at a kind of rigorous self-examination of doing the work to see more clearly to whatever degree we can pull thorns out of the heart to pull them out. I think one way of reading this vow is saying that that's the highest thing that a human being can do is to work on being clear and, and open-hearted. Or it might be saying it's the most sober thing. Like what happens when we really look at the kind of core truths that the Dharma points out? We really look at um, suffering and interdependence and karma. 
then what's the best way to spend a life? And so in this orthodox way of reading the vow, it's saying the most bang for the buck of a life is seeing these truths all the way through and then living out the consequences. There are different descriptions of the fruition of practice in, in different traditions. So if you have um, this more orthodox interpretation of the vow or even one that's in the, in the country, the ballpark of that, the fruitions of practice, the, the, the North Star of seeing the spiritual path all the way through, they tend to describe it as being some combination of living in a kind of frictionlessness and a wide open heart that fear isn't close us down anymore because there's freedom from the burden of personal narrative. So if you have faith, and that's really where this goes, then making the vow is you're, you're connecting it with that. This isn't where we're at now is not where we're going to be necessarily. Right? If we have faith that the descriptions that have come back down to us about where practice leads is this kind of, this kind of bliss. That's why it's good to have people like the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh or um, Desmond Tutu or different people who, through practice, they did something. They trained themselves in a particular way, and there seems to be a result that we can look at and say, okay, something happened there. That's part of what this vow is about is what if we totally commit to our awakening. Muster all our energies and channel them in that way. It's one way of thinking about, about this. I also think this is a vow that acknowledges the difficulty in waking up. Spiritual practice is really, really hard. It's really, really hard because all the unresolved things present themselves to be resolved. All, all of it. Compartmentalized desires, unlived lives, traumas, the thorns in the heart, maybe especially the thorns in the heart. The um, ways in which we disperse energy and the reasons that underlie why we disperse energy. We face perfectionism because for whatever reason, religious or spiritual stuff tends to trigger a perfectionist attitude. It's hard to go about it like really lightheartedly, at least for a long time, for most people. So this vow in saying the Buddha way is unattainable or it's supreme is also, it's saying it's, this is a really hard thing to do. And so this is a practice of rousing aspiration of saying it over and over, I vow to attain it. I vow to be the deepest version of myself. I vow to be the deepest version of myself. And the practice of that vow really has an effect. Something I think is important to think about is that Dharma practice is not natural. 
there's a lot of um, appealing language about natural mind or natural awakening and things like this. But, for example, as you sit there, you go against instincts to practice non-reactivity when you get uncomfortable. The, in, the natural instinct is when you get uncomfortable, move. Right? We could even go so far as to say what's natural is when someone bothers you to smash them. Right? So Dharma practice is not natural. You're actually going against the stream. Isn't there a group that has that as their name against the stream? And this was acknowledged by the Buddhas and the lineage ancestors that you are, you're going against not just your own habits, but against instinct. And it's super rewarding because a lot of the things that developed for us are now maladaptive. Things that were adaptive are now maladaptive. It was adaptive for the mind to continually scan for threat. If we're fortunate, most of the time, or at least a lot of the time, that's actually maladaptive. That's not helpful. So waking up is, is really difficult, but something happens when you say to yourself, I'm really going to do this. And you keep saying it, and you keep saying it. The unattainable part uh, is also, I think, really useful. The Buddha way is unattainable. I vow to attain it. In a sense, it acknowledges that there will always be a gap between our lives and what is possible for us as far as love and compassion and these things that the Dharma esteems. I think there will always be a gap. I don't know if you can meet um, a teacher who would tell you that their practice is perfect or that they no longer feel that there's some gap between what they know is possible of being the deepest version of themselves and how they actually show up. So I, I again, I think of Dogen Zenji's statement, my life has been one continuous mistake as an expression of that humility, my life was one continuous mistake. So there's a particular alchemy here of I vow to attain, to embody the deepest version of myself, but it's unattainable. Those are not perpendicular. As we get space from um, the critic, which I think is a fruit of just being here more and more thoroughly, there's the ability to see potential and see where we're at and the gap between those and not let it become fuel for just self-judgment. We don't get paralyzed by that as much. but potential actually um, inspires. It calls us forward. A future version of yourself um, beckons to you. Then some of the translations give another spin. The one of them said, this was by Kobenchino Roshi, 
who's kind of like the California Roshi. He set up a, a, a temple outside of Santa Cruz, and he was known for being um, quite open-minded, and he was rebelling against the Zen establishment in Japan, which is very formal. And he was known for like going to peyote ceremonies and for his students being, um, being very relaxed. And his translation says, the Buddha way is not above us, and so it's always accomplished. So emphasizing that, okay, there's something about awakening, and yet that something is not something apart. It's not that we're high and, excuse me, we're low and it's high. It's something about uh, embodying this moment. I vow to be awake in this moment and in this moment. I vow to be awake in this moment and in this moment, and that's the only moment you ever have. And so you fulfill the vow by being awake in this moment and this moment. A vow to embody it. But what would that be like? Let's say it's not just, oh, I'm in a shitty mood today. How do you like my shitty mood, Buddha? Let's say we avoid that trap. What would that be like? Envision uh, an awakened version of you and just take in that experiment and see what comes to mind. What would that, who, what would you be like? Envision an awakened version of you. What would you be uh, waking up from? If we took the descriptions of fruition from the tradition, we would be imagining our life without grasping. So some kind of pervasive okayness with how things unfold. But at the same time, compassion would be unhindered by, for example, for me, it's like laziness and fear and indifference, those kind of things. So that, that would be gone. And so I would, everything would be okay, and yet I would continually be trying to make life as beautiful as possible. Because there'd be nothing, there'd be nothing holding me back from that in each moment. Or you could envision an awakened version of you being um, fearless around death and what happens when you die. That's a big, big deal in the spiritual archetype to, to become, to not just resolve well-being in this life, but in the, in the big picture, to be totally okay with the way the universe is, including our uh, ephemerality. So this experiment, when you envision an awakened version of you, if it sparks something in you, then that might be useful. That might be something you um, want to listen to. But if you imagine an awakened version of you and it was just like this morning, then muscle tough. That's great. Right? Because this is not trying to say you need to be something other than you are. 
It's a contradiction, actually. The practice is full of contradiction. And us as practitioners, we will, we will be full of contradiction, especially if you practice Zen. Zen practitioners are full of contradiction. The unattainable is uh, an important thing. And that is awakening is not something that we can, we can grasp. Uh, when we're deep in practice, we don't sit there marveling at how great our state of mind is. That would be to be in a very particular kind of Dharma pit. That would be to be stuck. There's a saying, the stink of Zen. And somebody who um, is aware of their freedom, they, they smell, they have a stinky smell of spirituality. So it's un, unattainable. There's a, there's a sense that you, you're not even supposed to know if you've arrived. That's part of, uh, part of Zen tradition. Sorry to dwell, dwell too much on it, but it's what I know the best is um, your teacher never tells you that you're there, right? They might give you a gold star, but probably if they're good, they'll also take it away at the same time. We, the unattainable thing is cutting through a materialist orientation towards awakening. Rather than getting something, it's about losing something. There was someone at the monastery a long time ago who was admiring some of the long-term practitioners. You know, this person was in a place where they felt like they, they saw something different about people who had done this for a long time. And one of the teachers said, the way to think about it is it's not what they have that you don't, it's what they don't have that you do that makes them different. So it's a shedding. It's a shedding of something uh, ex- extra, actually extraneous to our being. Shedding something uh, extraneous. It's not an attainment. So the Buddha way is unsurpassable, it's unattainable. The ways of enlightenment are supreme. I vow to achieve them all. Buddha way, nothing higher, vow to accomplish it. However long, I vow to follow through. Many different ways, many different ways of saying it. But I circle back to one of the first things I said is, For me, and I wonder if it's true for you, the import of this is mostly aspirational or like it's emotional rather than um, some commitment to get something that I decided I want to get. So how it feels when when you say something of this nature rather than, is it a good deal? 
and is the bargain being held up by this dharma?